0: Our first reading this morning is 2 Kings chapter 18 and that can be found on page 274 of the Bibles in your pews. That's 2 Kings chapter 18 beginning at verse 1. In the third year of Heshiah, son of Elah, king of Israel, Hezekiah, son of Ahaz, king of Judah, began to reign. He was 25 years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem 29 years. His mother's name was Abijah, daughter of Zechariah. He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father David had done. He removed the high places, smashed the sacred stones, and cut down the Asherah poles. He broke into pieces the bronze snake Moses had made, for up to that time, the Israelites had been burning incense to it. It was called Nehashtan. Hezekiah trusted in the Lord the God of Israel there was no one like him among all the kings of Judah either before him or after him He held fast to the Lord and did not cease to follow him He kept the commands the Lord had given Moses and the Lord was with him He was successful in whatever he undertook He rebelled against the king of Assyria and did not serve him From watchtower to fortified city, he defeated the Philistines as far as Gaza and its territory. In King Hezekiah's fourth year, which was the seventh year of Heshea, son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, marched against Samaria and laid siege to it. At the end of three years, the Assyrians took it. So Samaria was captured in Hezekiah's sixth year, which was the ninth year of Heshea, king of Israel. The king of Assyria deported Israel to Assyria and settled them in Hala, in Gozan, on the Habor River, and in towns of the Medes. This happened because they had not obeyed the Lord their God, but had violated his covenant, all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, had commanded. They neither listened to the commands nor carried them out. In the fourteenth year of King Hezekiah's reign, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, attacked all the fortified cities of Judah and captured them. So Hezekiah, king of Judah, sent this message to the king of Assyria at Lachish. "'I have done wrong. Withdraw from me, and I will pay whatever you demand of me.'" The king of Assyria exacted from Hezekiah, king of Judah, 300 talents of silver and 30 talents of gold. So Hezekiah gave him all the silver that was found in the temple of the Lord and in the treasuries of the royal palace.'" At this time, Hezekiah king of Judah stripped off the gold with which he had covers the doors and doorposts of the temple of the Lord and gave it to the king of Assyria. The king of Assyria sent his supreme commander, his chief officer and his field commander with a large army from Lachish to king Hezekiah at Jerusalem. They came up to Jerusalem and stopped at the aqueduct of the upper pool on the road to the washerman's field. They called for the king. And Eliakim, son of, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna, the secretary, and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went out to them. The field commander said to them, "'Tell Hezekiah, this is what the great king, "'the king of Assyria, says. "'On what are you basing this confidence of yours? "'You say you have strategy and military strength, "'but you speak only empty words. "'On whom are you depending that you rebel against me?' Look now, you are depending on Egypt, that splintered reed of a staff which pierces a man's hand and wounds him if he leans on it. Such is Pharaoh, king of Egypt, to all who depend on him. And if you say to me, we are depending on the Lord our God, isn't he the one whose high places and altars Hezekiah removed, saying to Judah and Jerusalem, you must worship before this altar in Jerusalem? Come now, make a bargain with my master, the king of Assyria, I will give you 2,000 horses if you can put riders on them. How can you repulse one officer of the least of my master's officials, even though you are depending on Egypt for chariots and horsemen? Furthermore, have I come to attack and destroy this place without word from the Lord? The Lord himself told me to march against this country and destroy it. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, Shebna and Joah said to the field commander, Please speak to your servants in Aramaic, since we understand it. Don't speak to us in Hebrew, in the hearing of the people on the wall. But the commander replied, Was it only to your master and you that my master sent me to say these things, and not to the men sitting on the wall, who, like you, will have to eat their own filth and drink their own urine? Then the commander stood and called out in Hebrew, Hear the word of the great king, the king of Assyria. This is what the king says. Do not let Hezekiah deceive you. He cannot deliver you from my hand. Do not let Hezekiah persuade you to trust in the Lord when he says, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city will not be given into the hand of the king of Assyria. Do not listen to Hezekiah. This is what the king of Assyria says. Make peace with me and come out to me. Then every one of you will eat from his own vine and fig tree and drink water from his own cistern until I come and take you to a land like your own. A land of grain, and new wine, a land of bread and vineyards, a land of olive trees and honey. Choose life, not death. Do not listen to Hezekiah, for he is misleading you when he says, the Lord will deliver us. Has the God of any nation ever delivered his land from the hand of the king of Assyria? Where are the gods of Hamath and Arpad? Where are the gods of Sephavaim, Hena and Ivar? Have they rescued Samaria from my hand? Who of all the gods of these countries has been able to save his land from me? How then can the Lord deliver Jerusalem from my hand? But the people remained silent and said nothing in reply because the king had commanded, do not answer him. Then Eliakim, son of Hilkiah, the palace administrator, Shebna the secretary and Joah, son of Asaph, the recorder, went to Hezekiah with their clothes torn and told him what the field commander had said. This is the word of the Lord.
1: The second reading today is from Romans chapter 9, which is on page 801, verse 6. It is not as though God's word had failed, for not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. On the contrary, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. In other words, it is not the natural children who are God's children, but it is the children of the promise who are regarded as Abraham's offspring. For this was how the promise was stated. At the appointed time I will return, and Sarah will have a son. Not only that, but Rebecca's children had one and the same father, our father Isaac. Yet, before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad, in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works but by him who calls, she was told, "'The older will serve the younger,' Just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all, for he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire over it, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. This is the
2: word of the Lord. Let me add my welcome this morning. If you're new visiting amongst us, it's great that you've joined us in the crazy month that is December. Uh, I know it's easy to be distracted in a month like this, uh, but we want to focus... Uh, from that reading in Kings. Uh, We're back in Kings. If you've been with us, we've been working our way through Kings. It's the lead up to Christmas. Uh, The best way we might prepare for the King of Kings is that we might look back uh, to that which has come before and in doing so we'll appreciate even more uh, the great King, the Lord Jesus. Uh, So 2 Kings 18 hopefully is in front of you. I do hope you're able to stay for morning tea and we'll continue our conversations. But the most important thing we have this morning is God addressing us. And so let's pray that he might speak to us clearly. Our Lord and Father, we are thankful for your word. Uh, We are thankful that you have given it to us that we might know you uh, and live in such a way that pleases and honors you. We thank you for its challenges and we thank you for its comforts. Uh, and Father, we ask that your Spirit uh, would give to each of us what we need to hear this morning. Uh, for those of us who have come anxious, that we might leave comforted. Uh, for those of us who have come uh, too, too comfortable, uh, that we might leave challenged. Uh, Father, shape and change us that we might be like the King, the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen. It's pretty obvious to say that times of crisis are never fun. Uh, the few that I have faced... Uh, I wouldn't ask for them again. Now, there's no no pleasure in that moment of crisis, uh, but they can be massively helpful. Uh, A Sydney minister was interviewed, I read it this week, uh, the issue of a a midlife crisis, or they put it more politely, a re-evaluation was put to him. Uh, Because when it happens, people often feel like uh, they're the only ones experiencing trauma when a crisis hits. And so he was asked about his time of crisis, and he answered, um, actually, right in the middle of a midlife crisis. Extremely helpful experience to find out the idols that wormed their way unknown into my heart and which the disappointment of midlife is revealing. Now, crises aren't fun, but they're really helpful, aren't they, in showing our real hopes, showing our real trusts. Crises expose our gods. Uh, and this morning, uh, Kings is a strong reminder of who can be trusted in a crisis. You may be in a crisis currently, or you may simply recognise that in the eternal scheme of things, a false God will condemn you to never-ending crisis. Either way, today is a reminder to look to the only God who delivers. Uh, we see it first in seeing God's people themselves in crisis. Uh, chapter 18 picks up God's people there in the midst of crisis. If you've been with us in the, in the King series, we've skipped uh, a few chapters. We've skipped about 130 years. We're in about 720 BC. Uh, it's been about 250 years since um, the kingdom of Israel and the Solomon was glorious, was, was the place everyone envied. Now it's Assyria up to the northeast. We might have a map flash up in a moment. We do. Brilliant. Brilliant. Um, Syria up to the northeast, they're the new superpower. Uh, they have been sweeping down, building an empire bigger and bigger, coming down further and further. And 2 Kings 17, just before we read, opened with them arriving on the doorstep of that northern kingdom, Israel, uh, and they brought them to their knees. Uh, in 17, verse 5, Assyria besieges Israel's capital, uh, Samaria, and they're there for three years. And in 2 Kings 17, verse 6, in the ninth year of Hoshea. King of Assyria captured Samaria and deported the Israelites to Assyria, and now Assyria is on the doorstep of Jerusalem, the Southern Kingdom. That's the first and obvious bit of the crisis, isn't it? That you know, in 18 verse 13, um, the fortified cities of Judah have already started to fall to the Syrian army. So the other, you know, I think Newcastle has already fallen. They're on their way now. They're here in Sydney. we do have to worry too much. No, no, we do worry about Newcastle. Um, you know, there is a very real threat that what has happened to Israel, you know, cities burned, citizens killed, survivors scattered across the Assyrian army, families split up, that is about to happen to them. Yeah, and with that army there camped, uh, besieging Jerusalem, they, they start threatening, uh, they're talking the game up. Uh, Because it's easier than fighting the battle if they can get them to surrender, isn't it? And so in 18 verse 19, uh, the taunts start. He he mocks them in verse 24, where they put their trust. You know, they put their trust in their ally Egypt. Uh, You know, it seems that Jerusalem have decided to stop paying Assyria off, kind of mafia-style protection money. Uh, They've decided to stop that and, and invest in Egypt. Think, oh, Egypt will help us out, you know, just down there to the southwest. They can help us out. No. Uh, He mocks them for the fact that, you know, Egypt is like a broken staff. Anyone who leans onto them will actually have their hands split open. And he mocks them. The Assyrians mock them further for their weakness. You know, in verse 23, it's meant to be a bit of a joke. He kind of goes, I'll give you 2,000 horses if only you could find a couple of people to ride them and actually battle us. You know, you're so weak, we would have to equip you to make it a decent battle. But he oversteps the mark when he starts mocking the Lord. He questions the Lord's ability to deliver. Um, If you flick over the page, 18 verse 29, he says, Don't let Hezekiah the king deceive you. He can't deliver you from my hand. And don't let Hezekiah persuade you to trust the Lord when he says, The Lord will surely deliver us. This city won't be given into the hands of the king of Assyria. You know, that, that ability to deliver is the, the key of that section. Uh, nine times uh, it's mentioned in, in the Hebrew original from verse 29 to 35, so over about six verses. You know, the point is no other gods, no, no other nation's God ha, has been able to deliver, so they point that out in, in verse 34 and 5. No one else has been able to stand up against us. You know, it's reminiscent, isn't it, like like those who mocked Jesus on the cross. You know, he saved others, but he can't save himself. You know, the enemies of God have a habit of just underestimating his ability to deliver. Still, the people of God are in a real crisis. They are weak. The enemy is strong. The enemy is on their door. They know that God is able to deliver, but there's a second part to their crisis, their own sinfulness. See, the lengthy description in chapter 17 of Israel's fall Uh, was because of their sin and it details it you know for centuries the north had been worshipping the true God falsely and the north had been worshipping false gods truly Uh, and the Lord had warned them over and over again and it wasn't just Elijah and Elisha's ministry spectacular ministries we've seen bits of in the past few weeks Um, in 17 verse 13 the Lord warned Israel and Judah through all his prophets and seers it's not like they're ignorant They're just willful. And Israel fell to Assyria because in 17 verse 18, the Lord was provoked to anger. In 17 verse 20, he gave them into the hands of the plunderers. And the pain of that is that Judah weren't much better. Wedged in between that in 1719, between the anger of the Lord and his handing Israel over, in 1719, we read, even Judah, the south, didn't keep the commands of the Lord their God. They followed practices Israel introduced. So, yeah, as a nation, they might know the Lord does have power, but is he on their side? You see it close up in King Hezekiah himself. You know, he began so well. Uh, If you were listening to his name, you read it earlier in in 18.3, he he was the only king who was compared to David in doing what's right in the eyes of the Lord. So of all the kings of Israel and Judah's history, only Hezekiah is compared to David in doing what's right. You know, he he destroyed idolatry. He found old idols people had forgotten about, like that bronze serpent, and he kind of, I'm getting rid of that too. Uh, Verse 5, 18.5, he worshipped and trusted the Lord like no other. In verse 6, he held fast to the Lord. But when the Assyrians came, when the threat, when the crisis hit, unfortunately, so did he have a crisis of faith. He, he stripped God's household. He stripped the temple of all the silver and gold trying to buy the Assyrians off. At that key moment, he lost faith. You know, God's people are in crisis. There is this enemy on the door. They've been rejecting the one who could deliver them. You know, God might have the power, but after they've robbed him time and time again, why would he want to? See, in those midst of crisis, two kings shows us there is only one place to turn. There is only one God who can actually deliver. Assyrians don't think he's got power. Uh, Judah might worry about his willingness. But but chapter 19, we didn't read it. You can read it later on. (laughs) Um, Chapter 19 begins, Hezekiah in grief and in repentance. He he heads off to the temple. and, And he sends a special message to God's prophet Isaiah, in 19 verse 4 to to ask him to pray because the Lord has been mocked and pray as well for the sake of the remnant who are in crisis. In 19 verse 7 Isaiah gives the Lord's reply Um, the Assyrian army is going to be sent packing and they will face the sword but not by Jerusalem staging a fight. The Lord is going to do something more spectacular to underline that He is the one who saves. For those who question his ability, he'll make it clear it's just him. For those who are uncertain about his care of them, he will give a definitive answer. The climax, skip to the end of chapter 19, if you pick it up in verse 35. That night the angel of the Lord went out and he put to death 185,000 men in the Assyrian camp. And when the people got up the next morning, they are all the dead bodies. And so Sennacherib, king of Assyria, broke camp and withdrew. He returned to Nineveh. He stayed there one day while he was worshipping in the temple of his god, Nisroch. His sons, Adrammelech and Shariza, cut him down with the sword and they escaped to the land of Ararat. And Esarhaddon, and his son succeeded him as king. You know, that, that final comment where uh, Sennacherib gets killed in the presence of his god is to underline that there is only one god who delivers. And the reasons he saves are just as clear. Just before that bit I read, um, why does he save? 19 verse 34, I will defend this city, this is the Lord speaking, I will defend this city and save it for my sake and for the sake of my servant David. Why does God save? Well, he saves for the sake of his name's honour and he saves because of his faithful mercy. Running through this whole section is a thread of God's reputation at stake. You know, the enemy are suggesting the Lord is nothing more than your kind of local garden variety deity. You know, he is no match for their power. Yeah, you know, Hezekiah prays not just for himself, but he prays because he's got a concern for the reputation of God. In 1919, he, he prays for God to deliver them that all the kingdoms of the earth would know that there is only one God. See, God saves that people might know what he's really like he saves for his name's sake god will not be mocked it is not right for for creation to take the creator's glory it's not right for humanity to live in the error that god is anything less than he is it is not right for for god to have his name disregarded he saves for his name's sake but he also says because of his mercy that's why david gets a mention God had made promises to David uh, that a great household from him would be established. And yeah, Hezekiah didn't deserve to be saved. Judah didn't deserve to be saved. But, But the God who delivers doesn't break his word. He is constantly merciful to those who break theirs. Yeah, that's what makes the Lord's name so great. His faithful mercy. Now, that's what the Lord wants the watching world to know about him and to think about him when they hear his name because they're held together, his faithful mercy and his reputation. Uh, same combination in Romans 9 to 11. Damien read a bit of Romans 9 for us. We, Paul writes there, God's absolute freedom in choosing that he will deliver whom he wants to in Christ from their sins, from his wrath. Romans 9, 15, I'll have mercy on whom I'll have mercy, compassion on whom I'll have compassion. And why is he so free in that? Well, Romans 9, verse 7, that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. That is, God's name and his mercy consistently go together. They go hand in hand. God's name, his reputation, who he is, he is the God who delivers powerfully because he's merciful and he would have the world know that. I sat preparing and, and reflecting on this passage and preparing part of this talk Uh, In a park, I was uh, waiting for one of my daughters to uh, finish gymnastics. Playground was just in front of me, one of the more peaceful places in the world to prepare talks from the scriptures. Um, I was struck by one young boy um, blaspheming loudly and liberally. Uh, This boy, for him, the name of the Lord meant nothing more than just an expression of shock, um, of anger with his siblings and disappointment, really. (laughs) And I felt sorry for him. Because he'd never been taught any better he knows so little of who the lord actually is you know because when you see the lord's deliverance you realize his name is actually a beautiful thing his name is a a byword for faithful mercy and that's what the world should know of him and that's what we should know of him see crises may not be fun but they're really really helpful because they reveal where our true trust is And, and and we're encouraged this morning to to look to where there is a place that is reliable, to look to the character and action of our God. Three behaviours we should learn after seeing the God who can deliver. First is about our prayer. Pray according to God's name. So when the crisis hit, Hezekiah knew he could do nothing else except pray. You know, there's an urgency in 19 verse 1 in, in the original language um, that it goes, as soon as Hezekiah heard. I uh, kind of lose it a little bit there, but, but it's an urgency. He, he tears his clothes, he, he goes to pray, and that kind of experience resonates, doesn't it? When, when the crisis hits, people pray. There are, uh, they say there are no atheists in the trenches. Uh, I recently offered to pray for a, um, a man's father who was in hospital. He's not a Christian, but he really appreciated it. You know, we, we all pray in that time of trouble. But Hezekiah's prayer pushes us not just to pray in a crisis, it shows us what to pray in a crisis our prayer should still be concerned for our God. Our prayer should still centre on God. Because that's what faith is all about, isn't it? To be concerned for him and not become self-centred in that moment of crisis. If we have a look at that prayer, which we've been focusing on a bit this morning, from the kids' talk through our prayers to now, 19, pick it up in verse 17, Hezekiah's prayer. It's true, O Lord, speaking to the Lord, that the Assyrian king's have laid waste to these nations and their lands. They have thrown their gods into the fire and destroyed them because they weren't gods. They were only wood and stone fashioned by men's hands. Now, O Lord, our God, deliver us from his hand so that all kingdoms on earth may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. Even in the crisis, he prays God-centered. He makes his request for God's sake, not just his own. I was challenged this week, not just to pray, but how I pray. Now, to pray in Jesus' name is not just a kind of signature we put at the end before we do an amen. It's actually the framework of our prayers. It frames the content. It undergirds why we think that our Father in Heaven will actually listen to our prayers. Hezekiah knew that. Martin Luther understood it too, too. Um, there's a story of Martin Luther, a friend of his had been taken ill. His friend was so sick he couldn't was unable to speak and, and bedridden. And Luther wrote this to him. I command thee in the name of God to live, because I still have need of thee in the work of reforming the church. The Lord will not let me hear while I live that thou art dead, but will permit thee to survive. For this I'm praying, this is my will, and may my will be done, because I seek only to glorify the name of God. It's generally not the prayer we pray for our sick friends. <laughs> you know, their the friend actually ended up outliving Luther by two months. But, but I'm struck by, it's a, it's a God-centered, God-concerned prayer in the midst of crisis. You know, it understands the God who delivers and his concerns. Uh, I have a friend in South Australia who's seriously unwell at the moment. He's a, a father of six young kids. Uh, He's got a virus that's uh, attacking his brain. And I have been praying for his sake and I have been praying for his family, but I've been reminded to pray for God's sake too. And we mustn't let our crisis or our comfort trick us into praying as though God existed for our glory. We actually exist that we might share his glory. And so we pray according to his name because only he delivers. And to do things on our own or for ourselves will actually fail. We must pray as people who know and love God. Second, behavioural change is beware the idols that will let you down. Now, King Sennacherib's confidence was misplaced. He, he had this mighty army camped on the doorstep of Judah. You know, they were a successful army. They were good at what they did. They dismantled other nations. And so he got arrogant and it showed in his taunts. You know, Sennacherib hadn't realised the fact that it was the Lord who would given him victory. The sword was his God, and his God let him down. Now, Even Hezekiah fell into a similar trap. When the crisis hit, even though he'd had a, a kind of faithful early reign, he turned to cash and connections to save him. He handled the, the, the temple's silver and gold over to Assyria. He tried to carry favour with Egypt, but nothing worked till he turned to the Lord. Now, idols fail. And beware putting your hope in anything but seeking first the kingdom of God. Because anything else, everything else, will fail. They will let you down. You know, as that idol, uh, that interviewee I mentioned at the start said, idols can worm unknown into the heart. The disappointments, though, will reveal them. That was Sennacheru. That was Hezekiah's experience, and and maybe that's been your story. In those moments of crisis, your idols have been discovered. A Christian friend of ours. Uh, tragically lost her daughter, uh, age 19, Uh, and in her grief, uh, she went to a medium to make contact with her daughter. Uh, Later on, she uh, repented of it. She shared the story with others. Uh, She realised afterwards that her love of her daughter, which is a good thing, in such a terrible time, and it was a really, really terrible time, had actually become her idol. Yes, enjoy the good gifts God gives, but beware becoming dependent on them. Beware living for them. Beware idols that will let you down because there's only one God who delivers. And so finally, let me encourage you to trust in God's mercy. Now, Hezekiah failed dismally. After that great start serving the Lord, he caved under pressure, but the Lord forgave. He, he did the same for his nation Judah because he is a merciful God. His mercy can be trusted and it works. Now, we'd be fools to think of ourselves any better than Hezekiah. Even, even the greats of faith stumble, don't they? Uh, Wang Ming Dao was a, a Chinese pastor in Mao's uh, Cultural Revolution. In, in 1949, he was imprisoned. Uh, his final message to his congregation, he, he said, uh, we shall make whatever sacrifices required of us in being faithful to God. Regardless of how others may twist the truth and slander us, we, because of our faith, shall remain steadfast. And you go, what a great sermon, what a great leader. He went to prison, he was there for seven years, and then he recanted Christ and joined the Communist Party and got his freedom. It did great damage to the church who had looked to him. Of course, he wasn't truly free. Uh, He he spoke afterwards um, about how he walked the streets thinking of himself, I'm Peter, I'm Judas. And so he publicly reconfessed his faith and went back to prison. You know, greats of faith have failures, but Christ's blood covers it all. And we, who I suspect to have smaller faith, uh, may have smaller failures under much less pressure than he did you know, slipping easily into gossip at work or or envying the neighbour's, you know, latest acquirement or or just that pride that sneaks in when we've done a good deed that no one else happened to notice but we noticed, you know, our little fallings. And if you've come today burdened with with perhaps a crisis of your own failures, don't leave the same way. Now, when we fail, big or small, we can trust his mercy. You know, when we go and we admit our sin against heaven, we know that that burden is entirely lifted. He has taken it to the cross and he has delivered us there at that moment. See, crises aren't fun. And if you're in the midst of one now, I'm not trying to pretend it isn't, but they, they can be helpful. They can be really helpful if they will turn you back to the one and only God who delivers. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we are thankful for your power but also your mercy. We thank you for the way in which you do so many great and glorious things for our benefit. Father, we thank you and praise you as the one and only God who can deliver. Father, we ask that we would look only to you, that we would trust only in you, we would delight in you alone and that we might be concerned as you are for your name to be known. Father, we pray that you would continue to deliver us but also Uh, Deliver the many in our city that others might know your name, that others might know your faithful and merciful character. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.